0: You're listening to The Pivot, brought to you by Globally News, where we discuss the leaders, states, networks, ideologies and technologies that are reshaping the world order. Visit our website at Globally.news. That's Globe, dot news.
1: Welcome to Episode 1 of The Pivot. I'm Arif Rafiq, your host. The terrorist attacks last month on two mosques in New Zealand brought to fore the dual dangers of white nationalism and the demonization of Muslims. Whether you want to call it anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobia, its results are plain to see. A hatred of Muslims has yet again resulted in violence directed at innocent civilians. The mosque massacres in New Zealand do not come out of a vacuum. There's a broader discourse of white nationalism that's grown in the era of Trump, and so has anti-Muslim sentiment or Islamophobia. Jihadist violence targeting the West as well as Christian minorities in Muslim majority countries has also contributed to this polarization and this is a major aim of ISIS. In 2015, the terrorist group stated that it aims to eliminate what it's termed as the gray zone that separates its fanatical cult from the so-called crusaders. In recent years, these interlinked forces have resulted in attempted or successful mass casualty attacks on Muslim congregations in Western countries. In January 2017, Alexander Bisset, a French Canadian man who espoused white nationalist views, killed six worshippers at a mosque in Quebec, Canada. The attack, he said, was triggered by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's implicit rejection of U.S. President Donald Trump's so-called Muslim travel ban. In June of 2017, a man drove his vehicle into a crowd of worshippers at the Finsbury Park Mosque in London, killing one person. Eyewitnesses said he shouted, I want to kill all Muslims. Two months later, three white militiamen from the state of Illinois bombed a mosque in Bloomington Minnesota, with the stated aim of driving Muslims out of America. And just last month, after the New Zealand terror attacks, a mosque in Escondido, California was set on fire. The alleged perpetrator left graffiti behind, suggesting that he was inspired by the New Zealand terror attacks. Rising anti-Muslim sentiment is not limited to the West. We see it across Asia, including in India, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka, and it has made for odd alliances of convenience between groups that share an antipathy toward Muslims, including white and Hindu nationalists. In episode, episode will examine the motivations of the perpetrator of the New Zealand terror attacks and explore the commonalities between anti-Muslim discourses across the globe. We'll begin by speaking with Murtaza Hussein, who covers human rights and national security issues for the Intercept website. His work often deals with Muslim communities across the world. Now, the white Australian man responsible for the New Zealand massacres released a manifesto, and so it makes sense to extract some of the major ideas from that document. Here's Murtaza's take on it.
2: Well, I read the. Man- manifesto and I found it to be very much not the work of a madman as some may have suggested but a very coherent expression of white nationalist thought and ideology Uh, this uh, individual was motivated by a particular theory known as the great replacement theory which posits that white people in Europe and North America are being consciously replaced by immigrants from Africa Asia and Latin America as a specific uh, racial policy to change the demographics of their countries and effectively eliminate them as a category of people.
1: Now the Great Replacement is an absurd conspiracy theory, but it does have currency in the margins of the intelligentsia in western countries. And it has been leveraged by alt-right extremists, who've translated its basic components into memes and YouTube videos, which is perfect for a generation that perhaps no longer reads books. Here's alt-right provocateur Lauren Southern summing it up on her YouTube channel.
3: The Great Replacement is a term coined by French writer Renaud Camus referring to what he views as the irreversible overthrow of France and its culture by Muslim immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa. The Great Replacement is a very simple concept. You have one people and in the space of a single generation. You have a different people. Now the
1: Oxford-educated Camus has condemned the New Zealand attacks and espouses non-violence, but he continues to speak of white Europeans as the colonized indigenous people. And there's a linkage between intellectual incitement and violent action. You may recall that the Charlottesville protesters chanted, you will not replace us. As Thomas Chatterton Williams wrote in The New Yorker in 2017, Camus can play the role of respectable reactionary because his opposition to multicultural globalism is plausibly high-minded, Principally aesthetic and even well-mannered. Murtaza Hussein of The Intercept agrees.
2: Any sort of violence, uh, ethnic hatred, and uh, you know even genocidal outcomes—they all start with words, and they're words which are shared in the public by people reportedly in positions of authority and expertise. It's not surprising to me at all that some individual were to act on the rhetoric they're seeing in the papers or. On television on social media uh, you know it, it's his behavior is a logical consequence of that it didn't come out of nowhere and certainly there are these very fervent communities in the dark corners of the internet but I don't think you have to look there to find where this inspiration came from and even those communities their information comes from it they're not original reporters their information comes from from the press that they're consuming. And then they simply take the next step based on um, what they're already consuming, what they're already hearing is being a legitimate opinion.
1: Now, anxiety about changing demographies isn't limited to the far right or historically ethno-nationalist states. There are plenty of folks who can be considered mainstream conservatives in the United States who've been raising concerns about the browning of America. Here is Fox News' Laura Ingram from August 2018.
3: Because in some parts of the country, it does seem like the America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. And they're changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like. From Virginia to California, we see stark examples of how radically, in some ways, the country has changed. Now, much of this is related to both illegal and in some cases, legal immigration that, of course, progressives love.
1: Now, when Laura Ingram speaks of massive demographic changes, she's mainly referring to Latin Americans, who now form the largest minority community in America. But in many Western European countries, the largest ethnic minorities originate from Muslim majority states, and in some cases, Muslim majority states that were once colonized by these very European countries. Like ISIS extremists, believers in the so called Great Replacement are fed a filtered view of history that promotes their own victimhood. But the memes YouTube videos and dark web posts they consume leave out the legacy of European colonialism. The demographic changes they oppose are often a byproduct of the colonialism of their very own countries. France, for example, colonized Algeria in the 19th century, and today North Africans are France's largest ethnic minority. Now, before North Africans migrated to France, over a million French people settled in Algeria, where they held a privileged economic and political status in an exploitative racial religious caste system. Settlers possessed the most fertile land, local industry was discouraged, and French settlers and their descendants automatically obtained French citizenship. With citizenship, of course, came a host of economic, legal, and political privileges. In contrast, the local Muslim populace was only granted citizenship on the condition that they abandoned their Muslim personal legal status. And so the French colonial enterprise constructed Muslims as the other. In the early 20th century, Arabs and Berbers native to Algeria began migrating to France as temporary workers. Over 150,000 also fought in the First World War. By the end of the Second World War, Algerian migration to France not only accelerated but became permanent. While citizenship was eventually afforded to them, a two tier social system denied North African Muslims and their descendants full integration into France, even while holding citizenship. Similarly, until 1990, Germany denied citizenship to ethnic Turks who were born in the country. By the 1990s, discrimination toward Muslim migrants, rooted in colonial era policies, combined with extreme and often violent variants of Islamism, meaning the adaptation of the religion of Islam into a political ideology that had gained currency among a minority within Muslim diaspora communities in Europe. And to this day, we have a mutually reinforcing relationship between extremists on both sides, where Islamophobes and extreme Islamists portray the Muslim fringe as true representatives of the broader faith community. This fear-mongering accelerated after the 9-11 terrorist attacks and subsequent jihadist attacks in Europe, including the 7-7 terror attacks in London. These anti-Muslim narratives have become mainstreamed in many ways today. They're disseminated by media outlets, owned or funded by billionaires, and they're bolstered by an alliance of networks that share a disdain for Muslims. Now let's take a deep dive into those networks.
4: We are seeing now a return of the laws of jihad and of the laws of dimitude. Either non-Muslim civilization. Let like I say, the West, the Judeo-Christian civilization will disappear and be Islamized, or they will fight in order to survive this challenge.
1: So that was audio of an interview with British writer Bat Yeor on Israel's Arut Sheva television. For decades, Bat Yeor has raised hysteria over the prospects of the formation of what she calls Eurabia, a Europe dominated by Muslim peoples. Though lacking scholarly rigor, her ideas have been embraced and propagated by extremists including Norwegian terrorist Anders Breivik and scholars at right-wing think tanks including Daniel Pipes of the Middle East Forum. Daniel Pipes is a keynote in a network of think tanks, astroturf organizations, and alternative media outlets that aggressively promote the narrative that ordinary Muslims are part of a subversive campaign to bring down the West from within. Daniel Pipes is the son of late Sovietologist Richard Pipes, who played an influential role in America's previous long ideological war. Richard Pipes was a major critic of detente with the Soviet Union, so he was a Cold War hawk. In 1990, as the Cold War came to an end, the younger Pipes founded the Middle East Forum think tank, which was aimed at waging the next long ideological war, the one with Islamists. And in the wake of the first Intifada, Pipes also sought to combat the Palestinian movement for self-determination, which had gained legitimacy. legitimacy in the West. Over the years, Pipes has been consistent in advocating hardline policies toward the Palestinians and opposing the political empowerment of American Muslims. Pipes has called on Israel to seize the land of Palestinians and destroy their will to oppose the occupation. He's warned of growing numbers of brown-skinned peoples, cooking strange foods, and maintaining different standards of hygiene in the United States. And he's said that the presence, increased stature, affluence, and enfranchisement of American Muslims is a true danger to American Jews. Pipes has been influential in the conservative and pro-Israel policymaking communities. In 2003, he was appointed to the board of the U.S. Institute of Peace by President George W. Bush. Leading Democrats, including Ted Kennedy and Chris Dodd, opposed his nomination. And while Pipes made his way onto the USIP board, thanks to a recess appointment, the controversy ended up damaging his reputation. Now, Pipes has been shunned in more polite circles, but he's since regained influence with the convergence of pro-Israel Israel hardliners and the alt-right, and the Republican Party's more or less formal embrace of anti-Muslim bigotry. Most importantly, his think tank's operations are extremely well-funded. Since 2011, the Middle East Forum has received over $30 million in revenue. Its major funders include the shadowy Conservative Donors Capital Fund and philanthropists like Nina Rosenwald, an heiress to the Sears family fortune. Eli Clifton, a fellow with the Type Media Center and co-author of a groundbreaking report on the Islamophobia network in America, explains what makes the organization so unique.
3: Middle East Forum, its I think the only example I, I can think of of an organization that both produces content and a great deal of it. It, it, it operates as, as a node in the Islamophobia network, uh, helping to pump out as well as to echo back these uh, falsehoods and conspiracy theories about about Muslims but they also have another quiet role which is still visible in their publicly disclosed tax filings that shows that some of the money that comes to them from their donors uh, gets reallocated to other anti-muslim organizations or think tanks in this in this network so as well as producing content that is echoed by people like David Horowitz uh, and David Horowitz uh, in turn runs the Robert Spencer's Jihad Watch, um, or Center for Security Policy, that's Frank Gaffney's think tank, they also have actually distributed funds to to, to these organizations. Um, so I think that that sets them apart, and, and I don't think we have a clear explanation of exactly why or why that is uh, the role that Daniel Pipes' organization has taken on. I could speculate that it's possible that uh, for whatever reason, some of their funders, some of Daniel Pipes' funders, charge him or or, or empower him to, to help with the distribution of, of, of funds. But it, it certainly is a unique aspect of their
1: operation. So the Middle East Forum redirects much of its revenue to groups like the Center for Security Policy, whose President Frank Gaffney alleged that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim and that his Hillary Clinton's longtime aide, Huma Abedin, was a covert operative for the Muslim Brotherhood. Gaffney has also participated in campaigns opposing the construction of mosques across America. Like Pipes, Gaffney has been shunned to some degree in polite company, but he remains well-connected. He's a former senior Pentagon official, and his think tank's events have been sponsored by Lockheed Martin and other major U.S. defense contractors. Unsurprisingly, he served as an advisor to the Trump presidential campaign. Now, these networks claim that they are merely opposing Islamists meaning Muslims who have converted the religion of Islam into a political ideology. But more often than not, they use the term to refer to a majority of Muslims. So for example, they often claim that 80% of mosques in the United States are controlled by extremists. These networks create, curate, and disseminate the idea that Muslims, by merely building houses of worship or wearing religious garb, are existential threats to Western civilization. People like Gaffney call these activities stealth jihad. Now it's critical to note that Gaffney pipe and others part of this network are not academics perched in an ivory tower. They are activists who reach broad audiences, including members of law enforcement and the military, through conferences, social media, and talk radio. They are more than mere polemicists. They are radicalizers. And indeed, some who take their work seriously have adopted the path of violence. Here's Eli Clifton again on their link to Anders Breivik, the far-right terrorist who massacred 77 people in Norway in 2011.
3: Anders Breivik's manifesto cited Frank Gaffney's and Daniel Pipes and a number of other Islamophobes' work extensively. So Robert Spencer, the, the man behind Jihad Watch, was cited 162 times in Brevik's Manifesto. Daniel Pipes of Middle East Forum was cited 18 times. Bat Yor was cited 59 times, and, and Center for Security Policy and Frank Gaffney were cited seven times. So whether or not they intended for their work to be to, to serve as an inspiration for violence against Muslims and active of terrorism very much based around this concept of a clash of civilizations and and fundamentally again sort of a white nationalist narrative. It certainly served that purpose for somebody who was probably deeply troubled, but who ultimately did decide to to take up arms in an act of violence to try to address the types of problems that that people like Frank Gaffney and Daniel Pipes had, had been
1: Now while these groups condemn violence, it's not hard to see how their sustained hysteria about Muslims puts some people on the path of violence. Here's Eli Clifton again.
3: But when you really look at what they're proposing, as outlandish as it is in terms of policy proposals, it actually doesn't seem like it's anywhere near sufficient to address the scale of the threat that they're describing. And in that, I think there is something extremely dangerous, which is that they're not willing to actually explain what it is that would be ta- that would be required to address the threat that they claim is out there, and I think in that in that vacuum that they leave, um, there is a, a, a real opportunity for people who. Are maybe antisocial, have, have various forms of psychiatric problems, people who already hold these views, and, and we're looking for that extra push to to decide that, that violence is really the only solution to the problem. And in all honesty, when even coming from, from a, what I would hope is a more level headed uh, assessment, if you sort of suspend disbelief for a moment and try to take their description of this threat literally, and then think in your mind, well, what really would be required to address it? It's some pretty extreme uh, sets of actions and policies, ones that that really would put one on on the road to to large-scale acts of violence.
1: Recently, the Middle East Forum has funded Tommy Robinson, a hooligan who founded the Vigilante English Defence League, whose members have attacked mosques and Muslims. Robinson has been convicted of numerous crimes, including immigration fraud and assault. Recently, Tommy Robinson had a show on Rebel Media, the Canadian alt-right media outlet. Here's a clip of Robinson on Rebel TV, broadcasting from a predominantly Muslim area of Manchester, England.
5: When you see these communities and you see these houses, you think this is a British community or you might have British Muslims. They are they are enemy combatants in these houses. In these houses are enemy combatants
1: who want to kill you, maim you and destroy you. They want to destroy our way of life. So Tommy Robinson is using the war and terror terminology of enemy combatants to apply toward Muslim civilians. The implication is clear. These ordinary people are fair game in a war that is being fought in the streets of the West. Again, his provocations are subsidized by wealthy philanthropists who support Israel. Here's British Iraqi rapper and activist Loki on Russia Today on the networks that financially back Tommy Robinson.
0: Oh, okay, Interestingly, Robert Shillman is the uh, he formerly was on the board of directors for the um, Friends of the Israel Defense Force. They are the forces, they are the biggest international donor to the IDF, you know, just last year, I think it was $72 million um, they, dollars they donated. But um, according to Lucy Brown, who's an ex-employee of Tommy Robinson, Tommy Robinson was receiving um, £10,000 per month from uh, Robert Shillman as a Shillman fellow. So here we see a connection. You know, another interesting connection to Tommy between Tommy Robinson and Israel is, of course, Middle East Forum. And, you know, the director of Middle East Forum is a gentleman called Greg Roman, um, a former employee of the Israeli Foreign Ministry and the Israeli Defense Ministry and Middle East Forum, of course, um, funded uh, Tommy Robinson's legal fees and also the Free Tommy um, campaign and protests, which of course had people chasing police down the street.
1: Tommy Robinson is not the type of person you'd think billionaires and people with PhDs from Harvard would support. He's a racist street thug, but he has friends in high places. This powerful anti-Muslim network sees value in him. When Robinson was imprisoned in 2018, Ambassador Sam Brownback, the Trump administration administration's envoy for religious freedom, lobbied the British government for his release. Later that year, Robinson was invited by seven members of Congress to a meeting in Washington. Eli Clifton explains what Robinson, far-right Dutch politician Gerd Wilders, and alt-right media outlets offer Daniel Pipes and his financial backers.
3: They both have populist support in, in, in Europe. They are espousing a message that that is the message that people like Daniel Pipes have been putting out for many years, which is that Europe is under siege, under attack, and won't be the Europe that it was before. And And they're taking it to the streets. And, and I think that, that Daniel Pipes sees probably the, the value in that, in that this Is that what he has been saying now, finally taking a a real form of a movement in in Europe and and places like Rebel Media and and Breitbart have have done an effective job of of, of trying to to, to boost that message.
1: But these odd alliances of convenience go beyond white nationalists and extreme supporters of Israel. Here's Tommy Robinson interviewing Tapan Ghosh, a Hindu extremist from the Indian state of West Bengal.
5: I've seen that we're the first first place I heard of the term love jihad. So, and that's what that is, love, it's mad because in, in our country we have a mass scandal going on, which is grooming. Right. And t- tell me about what you've seen with that in India.
4: See, I am uh, very sorry to say that this love jihad happening in few provinces like a, in, uh, like a very uh, disease, infectious disease. Sadly, in our Hindu homes, the there are uh, there religious, there is religious uh, training, rituals, etc. But uh, but the Hindus are not taught about the evil design and intention of the Muslims. Therefore, in most of the cases, the Muslim boys take a Hindu name yeah, yeah. by fraud. And the boy uh, gets in touch with Hindu girl and he proposes the girl, he takes uh, her to a restaurant on, uh, on the backside of his motorbike to Villar and uh, they uh, get in affair. But see, this is not simple love affair. What happens? Almost in every case, when the boy or the girl Indulge in some any kind of physical uh, uh, intimacy, even like the kiss. They take the photograph and then they exploit the girl. They force the girl to marry him, to come come out with him, and to be convert. And these thing. Is called lab Jihad. Exactly, exactly the same is it's happening here.
5: Exactly the same, where they pretend they're Sikh, they they come and pretend they're Sikh, and then they use exactly the same tactics. That's what I want to understand. Is I think the problems in India, you're many, ten or fifteen years ahead of us, Great. in the problems you're going to face. Which is why I understand that you've set up her, you've set up your organisation, which has a hundred thousand young Hindu men who volunteer to now protect your community, to protect your daughters.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Now you may be wondering, who the heck is Tapan Ghosh and what in the world is Love Jihad? Ghosh is the founder of the Hindu Samadhi Organization. It operates in the Indian state of West Bengal, which borders the predominantly Muslim country of Bangladesh. Now that's a long way from England, but there's a large South Asian diaspora community in the United Kingdom, and both Ghosh and Robinson are keen to play on those divides. In June 2018, Ghosh was banned from Twitter, not too long after he had addressed an audience at the British Parliament. It's during that trip when Rob Robinson interviewed him. Now, the Hindu Samadhi is so extreme that it's split from another extremist organization, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, or RSS for short. The RSS was founded in 1925. It's a very powerful Hindu extremist organization, and it was inspired by European fascist movements. It's the chief ideological organization of a network of Hindu extremist organizations known together as the Sangh Parivar. India's ruling party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, is the network's main political front. The Hindi Samadhi and the RSS are Hindu organizations, but they adhere to a specific ideology known as Hindutva, and it's really important to make that distinction, the distinction between Hinduism, a religion with over a billion adherents, and Hindutva, an ideology that builds off of Hinduism, but was inspired by European fascism. What Hindutva organizations have in common is that they equate Indianness with Hinduness. All those who are Indian must also be Hindu, they say. And all those who are not Hindu are not Indian. So while they regard Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism as offshoots of Hinduism and accept them as so-called Indic religions, they've deemed Christianity and Islam as alien traditions, despite having been practiced in India for over a millennium. Some forces within the Hindutva network advocate for Muslims to be denied voting rights unless they recognize that they have Hindu origins and pay obedience publicly to Hindu religious symbols. So getting back to the clip we just played, why is it important? Well, it's an instance of a Hindutva extremist lining up with a white nationalist and it's no isolated event. Many Hindutva extremists across the internet celebrated the New Zealand terrorist attacks. The principle, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is playing out right here. The alt-right and Hindutva extremists promote similar canards about Muslims, with themes of sexual subversion and the political appeasement of Muslims. Love Jihad, if you're wondering, is a term made up by Hindutva extremists. They claim that Muslim men woo Hindu women with the aim of surreptitiously converting them to Islam. And if you think this is just some random conspiracy theory, the Love Jihad canard has been embraced by major Indian news channels and even the government. In 2017, an Indian High Court annulled the marriage between a Hindu woman who had converted to Islam and a Muslim man alleging that the woman was brainwashed. In 2018, that ruling was overturned by the Indian Supreme Court, but Indian news channels and politicians continued to promote the Love Jihad myth. A month after that ruling, India's Times Now news channel reported that a Love Jihad storm was on the horizon. Now we've discussed the tactical partnership between alt-right extremists and hyper-partisans of Israel and sympathies between the alt-right and Hindutva extremists. But there's also cooperation between Hindutva extremists and hardline supporters of Israel. Listen to this clip of Tapan Ghosh being interviewed on an Israeli news channel.
3: Joining us on the program is Hindu Samhati's founder, Tapan Ghosh. Thanks for Shalom, us. namaste. Shalom, namaste. All right, so let's begin with, you know, kind of the issues that your community has been dealing with on the border with Bangladesh. How does this compare to, to some of the struggles that Israel has?
4: see israel is encircled by the islamic countries uh, but in our west bengal our eastern neighbor is an uh, islamic country bangladesh and continuous infiltration muslim infiltration happened to not uh, to our west bengal and also to other parts of eastern india because there are there are porous border no stick, border, no stick, border fences, etc.
1: So while all politics is local, geopolitics and social media are catalyzing a transnational brand of anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobia some might call it intersectional. Here is Eli Clifton on how limited, though not insubstantial resources, can drive these networks of people together using social and alternative media.
3: The fact that something like Breitbart Rebel Media can exist and be relevant, it is largely not a product of how they were funded or the amount of money floating around in the space. It's largely a product of uh, how people consume news, the dissemination of news through social media, the collapse of fundamentally sort of critical thinking about how we consume our news, as well well you know these technologies allow us to, to target where uh, certain types of messages, certain types of content get, get promoted through Facebook. Um, and I and I think that that's really the space in which these views ideas have mainstreamed as well as brought together people who were maybe otherwise not able to find each other to self-reinforce. And, and I think that that's probably the takeaway. I, I know it's not a, a hopeful one, but I think it, it's one we need to come to terms with is that we're living in an era where uh, manipulating uh, the public and And bringing together people who have fringe ideas who might otherwise be largely marginalized um, is now a, a regular occurrence.
1: This is no momentary blip. Anti-Muslim bigotry is here to stay, at least as a local phenomenon in countries like India that are going through a generational shift and are embracing a majoritarian form of nationalism. And with the power of social networking and alternative digital media outlets, these transnational anti-Muslim networks are also likely to grow. At the same time, it must be noted that in response to rising anti-Muslim bigotry, many within non-Muslim majority societies are rising in defense of their Muslim neighbors. In the United States, muslims have gone from being political pariahs to thoroughly embraced by the left but at the same time there is a two-party system and the republican party has doubled down on islamophobia it is this very balkanization that the new zealand attacker said he sought to catalyze now while jihadist attacks in the west have subsided over the past few years we must be vigilant in watching out for radicalized majorities in europe the United States, and other countries, including India. As recent events have demonstrated, just one radicalized person can bring immense harm and shake a nation.